Hello internet and welcome to the 52nd episode of the Deep Fried Neurons podcast and I have to apologize in the in advance because there's a lot of noise in the recording mostly because well I'm not doing it in the comfort of my home anymore uh the mics are a lot more deliberate so I mean that helps like because I got a new mic it really really changed how much how we experience the the audio recordings uh but overall there's a lot of noise is all like I can't I couldn't remove all of it but uh it was a good episode and i really wanted to share it so i'm just going to like cue the fucking what's up boomers hello welcome to the 52nd episode of the deep fried neurons podcast and uh, today we have two guests with us um i would rather have them introduce themselves because i always fuck up introductions and it's 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 a nightmare of mine so Hi, I'm Aditi. Hi, I'm Trisha. You know, when I say introduce yourself, I mean more than that. <laughs> like, tell us what you do. Tell us where, like, what your educational background is and things like that. <laughs> brilliant start, brilliant start. I love it. This is so awkward. My audience is gonna love you guys. <laughs> Okay so I'm Aditi uh I am an architect and a art historian ish and <laughs> I work with Tifa Working Studios I do programs and curation and design and stuff like that yeah Um I'm Trishla Talera I am founder director of Tifa Working Studios as fancy as that sounds Um I studied fine art uh, specifically textiles and fibers and um, other kinds of fine art. <laughs> okay. Uh well as it stands in front of this podcast the uh, the issue today that we're discussing is conceptual art and if any of you people who call me a snob on the street you can you can quit right now actually don't I need the lessons and the watch time please. Um but Today I don't know a lot about conceptual art but these people do which is why I am here trying to gather their opinion and run with as much knowledge as I can home so what i read about conceptual art on the internet is that the idea of art matters more than well literally anything that could be skill the aesthetic all of it is secondary and the con- concept is that the idea matters is all well that was very very vague for me and the other thing i read was <coughs> that most of the people who are famous for doing conceptual art got famous in 1960s um you can go literally in any direction oh another piece of information that i had is solowit is the father of conceptual art for most people i mean i know marcel duchamp has been mentioned on the podcast before which again is a point of uh, differentiation he is the father So Marcel Duchamp is considered the father of, uh, of conceptual art. Um a lot of people uh do think that Solowit deserves the title. I personally like Solowit a lot more because I think he pushed it a lot further, but Marcel did kind of begin the movement father mm. fathering definitely so. He didn't nurture it. Like uh, Solowit nurtured the movement much more than mm, Duchamp mm. ever did. So is it is it safe to assume that the biological dad is Marcel Duchamp and 
the dad who adopted and raised the kid is so low it sure yeah yeah sure i find it very amusing how you say you find conceptual art vague um because it's really the basis of uh, meme culture today yeah, uh, yeah. absurdity dadaism conceptual art yeah. these are kind of the baseline for what we're seeing on the internet today in a lot of ways the reason i say it's vague is because i don't know where the scope of conceptual art stops and the rest of the art begins nor do we <laughs> <laughs> we are going to find nor do we um and i mean before this podcast we were talking about what we would do on this podcast and we started debating even before that so i don't think there is um a line to segregate it it kind of overlaps in very many mm-hmm. ways So uh I mean my audience knows a little bit about Marcel Duchamp uh in that sense they know about two artifacts that he put in in the museum first one of course is uh the fountain where he put literally a toilet in there and the second one I'm sorry urinal <laughs> urinal and um the other one is uh I think the the bottle hanger or the coat hanger the coat hanger, the coat hanger. those are the two that they know about or have mentioned before for our new audience they probably have no clue so could you give your understanding of conceptual art and as to what it means according to you we'll do like turn by turn so i won't say much about marcel but just to kind of preface this he started a movement called the ready mates which was pretty much um in the early 60s where industrial uh, revolution was just hitting and he was kind of This is where also design kind of gets introduced into art and the and the differentiation between art and design kind of starts to blur. So he put a urinal which was an industrial made object onto a pedestal in a museum and called it art. So a lot of questions around um is this art who gets to call it art. So really the foundation of where conceptual art lies um is within the question. I think for me um obviously these are the starting but also what Sol Sol Lewis brings into the view is does an artist need to make their own artwork? and this is where it starts to get uh, shaky and also um as he was mentioning earlier skill how much skill does an artist need to have to be an artist and this is where conceptual art kind of changed the rules as to who can apply who can use these terminologies into what they do do i need to know how to draw or sculpt to be an artist and today the answer is no but in the 60s it was very much yes so they were very very rebellious they were for their time they were very very progressive and kind of being like you know what we're going to break all standards or assumptions or boxes that you think art can exist in and kind of see where we can push art until um again i feel like i'm i don't want to talk about this historically i want to talk about it more conceptually <laughs> sorry um but like mostly because i feel like the idea of conceptual art is to break down uh the difference between art design craft and where each of them lie because this has been these three things and the subject of art versus design versus craft has been of debate since centuries and when you go about and say that sorry i don't even i i can't pick up a paintbrush or i can't i can't sculpt or i can't do whatever and i'm going to make something that is not even objectively pretty you know um how is what i make art is what uh, conceptual art essentially addressed um and more than that i feel like 
I was talking to Trishla about this earlier. I feel like it's a subset of a lot of things that happen in the arts, design, cultural sector in general right now. Like where we are right now, we owe it to conceptual art. Mm-hmm. Uh, mean culture, for example, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of aesthetics in the internet culture um, is is because of the idea of conceptual art because we are constantly questioning what is what is beautiful, mm-hmm. what what is what your idea of beautiful is different from my idea of beautiful, and that is something that conceptual art gave us. There's not one version of of aesthetic. There's not one version of beauty. And there is not one version of skill. I find that really interesting because it's this time in the 60s where we've gone through the Renaissance, where we've gone through seeing these really elaborate um, paintings, elaborate sculptures. You've seen really ornate things. So when surrealism started, when Dadaism started, it was really with this idea of how, how do we go forward from here? How do we negate? How do we come back to basics? So abstracting. Um, and the idea of abstraction uh, started 20s onwards, I would say, but in conceptual art is really where it peaked because they they took out so much meaning uh, from the visual because most of the art culture that we talk about is, is predominantly a visual culture. Mm-hmm. They removed so many visual elements. They removed so much of the aesthetic of it um, that it was really to... Um, come to the very basics of how can I say what I want to say without really showing anything, mm-hmm. which is where conceptual art started to sit. It's, we're saying something, but we're giving you literally like one or two hints of what it could be. The rest is for you to figure out. It's, it's kind of like I'm thinking something and what I'm thinking is in this space where hundreds of people can access it. Mm-hmm. and each of them can access it differently. So I have this thought, this thought can be represented in any way possible. This thought can be someone screaming, this thought can be uh, like a line on a piece of paper, this thought can be an empty room. Uh, but what you bring, like what you take home of that thought is up to you. And which is why I feel like audiences struggle mm-hmm. a lot with conceptual art because they don't know what to take home with them when it is something as raw as like an empty room or someone screaming, what do you what do you take home from that? So yeah, I I agree with you in that sense that, you know, it's kind of like abstraction to a point where you don't even understand it. We don't we understand, don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> so So I mean uh, the first thing both of you mentioned is that like the separation of idea from praxis is what I heard. I mean, of course, possession of skill necessary to make art. Uh, something interesting I read about Solovit, my knowledge on him is very limited, but that he never, it, a lot of his artwork he never made, but he wrote down uh, what to do and how to draw it. And th- so like, how did that work? And what, like, what qualifies as his art is my question. So Soluit, very, very interesting human because really what you're asking is at that time, imagine the 60s, really groundbreaking for an artist to not make their own work, uh, forget even getting other people to make the work. He didn't even kind of, um, he wasn't like running a studio, whereas a lot of artists before him used to not make their own work, but they all kind of directed the artwork in a certain sense. Um, Soluit, for the first time, he wrote manuscripts, right? He gave, essentially it was a guidebook 
on how to make good art or how to make art and he did not like anyone could buy these books collectors bought these books um and anyone but if you read the manuscript it's super interesting cuz unless you are a trained artist you will not be able to interpret what the manuscript says Mm-hmm. So it's it's very uh, so I saw a retrospective by him in Mass Mocha, which is about four hours from Boston, has one of the largest collections of Sol Luit work. And if you've seen the aesthetic of Sol Luit, it's it's really restrained. It's big bold colors. It's very minimal at the same time. Um, but some of his manuscripts would say, uh, take a take a line upward, bring it back down, take it diagonally, and then take it horizontally. So. if if someone read that to interpret that first you can also interpret it in your own way mm-hmm. second it can also be interpreted in different ways um so i found it really interesting on the visuals they showed and i also asked the the person who was guiding us through this exhibition is how do you decide which one was actually soloed and which one was not what he wanted and they were like there there is no really um benchmark and this is also just from a side point but the art market starts to play a role because the works are not sold they're still sold as sol luet's works but his manuscripts actually hold a lot more value in terms of monetary value than his artworks ever will mm-hmm. so this is the sorry this is the question that you know uh, we were asked to write really lengthy essays about is that is the manuscript the work of art or is the painting the work of art Mm-hmm. which is where it gets very interesting because the ideas of like the tangible ideas of art like ownership authorship mm-hmm. credit um um sale money all of the things that like add what do you say um very physical value to art what, what do you associate that with do you associate that with just a set of instructions Do you associate that with a colorful piece of painting mm-hmm. on a gallery, or or both, or so if that if you associate it with both, then who gets like to put it simply, who gets the money, who gets the credit? These these questions still bug me because <laughs> I don't know, I don't. There is no correct answer to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do copyrights work? Like very like. very you know practically who legally owns this particular piece is also very interesting and is a question that only conceptual art has been able to and after that maybe street art mm-hmm. has been able to uh, bring up so interesting that you bring up like um, the subject of ownership because the first time i came across solovet and well what his artwork is is when trishla talked about it but the second time i actually read about it was uh, when i was doing the the second meme video like uh, does anyone own a meme plug 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 check it out <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in that the reason i mentioned that is because often the art of rebellion it gets commodified and put in a museum and then a price uh, then a price tag is put on it but interestingly solovets work since everybody's unsure what the work exactly is because it's abstract to the point of that it's an idea written down in a book open to interpretation in some places so is it is it a common trend in conceptual art like across artists to fight the idea of ownership and copyright in a certain sense yes i say that because of like i feel like i've seen a spectrum of artists across the globe um mm-hmm. and i think innately 
in a lot of ways the artist community reacts to maybe a right wing or a capitalist system in the way that they create the art um so they the attempt at kind of pushing back uh the thing is when it gets popular when it gets uh, mainstream in a certain way when it's liked by people um it gets it gets incorporated uh, i'll say it in marathi it's a kind of ghonta it um, okay. it gets incorporated into a system which is not uh, what it was built for it was rebelling against it and similar to also how hinduism was like oh buddha was a rebellion we'll take him as the 11th avatar within hinduism so it's a kind of ghonta uh, understanding sorry i i don't know how to explain ghonta but incorporated is me probably the closest um, understanding of it uh i saw it um i've seen trends of this also happening like uh with rangrupa which is a huge collective not huge but a big collective out of indonesia um completely kind of decentralized model of making art they use found objects they don't buy art materials in a certain sense they don't even create physical objects anymore and this is happening in the last i would say two decades right mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah 80 there are 20 artists it's indonesia so the social political economical context which they work in they were like no we don't have enough money to buy these huge canvases thing how do can we use found object or screen printing or kind of hacking the system in a certain way to create what we want today rangrupa is known as a huge um, body or collective of artists their work is um, very in demand they the collector they are the curators for documenta next year 2020 um yeah which is fantastic because they're asian they change the parameters of who gets to be shown in these kind of big global art fairs art um art festivals so here what i'm trying to say so we had an indonesian artist at tifa in 2016 and he um aditya was his name he essentially created um experience where he invited 10 people at a time into a black room uh, and he had uh, he works with sound so he had um a Uh, musical compositions of his own but he got different DJs to mix it in their own way and he got like street ganpati like street DJs to mix this and he invited people in for 10 minutes and then he kind of threw them out but the fact that you could party for 10 minutes in a room in broad daylight was his art so i was like wait how can this be art like how does this even work um so i think these are ways in which they're really seeing kind of ways of conceptual art and how it's panning out even to this day where i find it super exciting so going back to your question it is it is always rebelling the system but as it gets more sexy it gets incorporated which is sad but it's also good because then there is a kind of um, ripple effect to it today a lot of the conceptual art that you that we speak about right now Marcel Duchamp Yoko Ono um Solouette um the whole spectrum of them they're all collected by museums the best collectors in the world because the world is really really expensive now mm-hmm. and this is where art and art movements play a huge role because uh they respond to your current time so it's a way of documenting history which is why they're keeping it which is why they have a uh, monetary value as well i find this very interesting because it's very less often that the artist gets to decide whether or not he or she becomes popular or sexy mm-hmm. that is like it's not i feel like that that reaction does not i don't want to say they don't have the power to do so because they do but like it comes from a very different space it comes from from a space of like say for example if rangrupa is going to documenta documenta is giving that to rangrupa like 
you understand it, there's, it, still, a there's, still, there's still a power dynamic over there and we tend to forget that when we talk about whether or not artists agree with that agree with the way the higher power represents what they have done because at the end of the day how do you monetize or credit ideas um, I mean but I like to add um, so there are artists also globally who've rebelled this so they're like you know what hell with you we're not going to participate in so and so because we do not agree with the ethics yeah. and the parameters in which you are situating this festival or this museum or whatever or even the sponsorship that they get so talking about an Indian artist Amar Kanwar who was selected for Venice Biennale actually declined the offer to show at Venice Biennale Venice Biennale is one of the largest mm -hmm. longest running biennales in the world and I think two editions ago he denied to go because he did not agree with where the funding for yeah. the Biennale was coming from at that point so that is also a very harsh stand to take because as we the romantic idea of a starving artist it's not maybe so romantic anymore, but there are still, they still do still come from a socio-economic background that might not be the elite. So I think it's really important to analyze also that rebellion that doesn't um, get noticed very often because they said no. Only, we realize only the yeses and never the noes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, wanted to add to that actually. Uh, so Tate Modern has a turbine room, has a turbine hall. And there's this rule, uh, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, someone, somewhere. Uh, if someone gifts something to the turbine hall, the Tate has to keep it for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, they cannot reject it. It's there, so it needs to be there for some time. So a while ago, uh, Tate was being funded by uh, Big Oil somewhere, and uh, there was this... Uh, person, I don't remember their name, maybe they are anonymous. Do you know the person who... The petroleum the pe not the Not the petroleum company, but the person who got this giant uh, windmill wing and put it in the turbine hall? Um, I don't remember the person's name. But like, for me, that is conceptual art, is when um, I sort of, I disagree with you to a point where I'm going to go and procure steel, I don't know what, but get a giant, <laughs> giant windmill wing and put it in the biggest room in one of the biggest modern art spaces in the world just as a point of rebellion. And also to that, like, to coming back to my last point is that how do you monetize something like that? Like, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you, or how do you credit something like that? Or because it comes from so how do you monetize an idea how do you monetize an emotion how do you monetize a rebellion it, these are very difficult but important questions to art as a viewer when you are in a space and you're like oh i don't understand this you have to you need to like sort of but also who monetizes that is also yeah that is also quite true who monetizes it like who has put this here so um, whenever you're whenever you're in a space thinking you know, like when you think about those things, think about what is your uh, perception of what you need to pay for. Your issue with this is that you have had to pay whatever 100 rupees, 50 rupees to come in a space and look at this, look at someone screaming or like look at a blank wall. And it 
at the end of the day what these guys are trying to do is make you ask yourself that this is like the bare, the most bare form of idea how do you pay for it but i need to be pay for it because at the end of the day i get my food from it mm-hmm. so like it's a very tricky question <laughs> and i still feel like i struggle with it a lot but it's an important question that i feel like is was born from the idea of conceptual art well if if we're questioning how do you monetize rebellion it's easy it's pop punk <laughs> <laughs> well i can't hate on it i love it actually i'm i'm in love with every like green day is my favorite band i don't know i've had a phase i've had a phase <laughs> i think we've all had a phase <laughs> <laughs> um but jokes aside uh, the the next issue i had in mind that i wanted to discuss is the is the issue of originality and this is coming from a layman's perspective because i talk to a lot of people who are outside the art world before like i framed questions for this podcast um i told them about a very specific artwork uh, by ian burn mm-hmm. yeah i think it's it's called copybook or xerox book 1 xerox book 1 yeah like you already know about it that's great so uh, what he basically did is that he took a blank paper and he xeroxed it 100 times and by the 100 page the noise of the xerox machine was recorded in the um the very picture and i i told them as to why i think it's art but they were like but why would i pay for that why would i pay to see that why does that need to be recorded in history so how do you and how is that original most importantly so what is your answer to the question that what defines originality in art very interesting question i'm very um, amused also by it because there's i for me i don't think there's anything as original anymore we've been through way too many iterations we've and especially in this day and age where you have access to the internet every idea of yours has been digested through you which is why you might think it's original but there's really nothing as original anymore unless you're going super duper deep into a certain thing which i feel like in general a larger public is not so unless you're super specialized in i don't know machine learning or ai or whatever it is there's only a certain amount of iterations that can be done of a certain thing also at the same time we've seen parallels globally on one artist in india making something and the same thing happening at the exact same time in beijing in i don't know uruguay or wherever um and these are people who are not in touch with each other at all um and it also has nothing to do with that this can be ideas that are generate it's like a collective consciousness in a way and today because we live in a such a hyper connected world the collective consciousness is streaming in a in a much more i don't know fast flowing way a lot of ideas are dissipating super fast mm-hmm. um content is something which is very freely available today to a, a lot of people so a human mind has a certain kind of uh, way that it it flows through things um i really like your example of um the xerox copy and i think there are different ways in which that's happening so you spoke about the xerox copy which is probably a work that happened about 40 50 years ago easily mm-hmm. more maybe um there are versions of that coming out from the digital spectrum as well so we had not just actually at the 2018 residency at tifa called artel which was on um to participate in the archive and one of the artists took the group picture from the residency and took took a similar screenshotting of it from uh, from Instagram and posted each it till it kind of completely blurred away the image 
Um, so these are also to show industrial impacts or digitization impacts on image, on quality, on originality for that matter. And I think meme culture, again, going back to it, mm-hmm. is a fantastic example to see you can't have originality. And the original thought is even putting two and two together. I think that's where things get exciting because if you take something and this is where for me super duper important is because we are in a multidisciplinary world. We're heading more and more into a multidisciplinary practice. But if a if a law student can make memes, if a <laughs> psychologist can dance, these are things where it's getting exciting because you're taking two almost polar opposite um, theories or nuances and applying it. And that's what actually conceptual art or contemporary art in a lot of ways talks about it is not not referenced it's not not research these artists do a huge amount of research before they put out or what they put out it's not like oh i thought of making this xyz uh, thing or i thought of using this color of blue or this blackest black um, because i dreamt of it one morning they've they've really worked on it they're almost obsessive people so they constantly come back to a certain um, concepts that they're working on, certain questions that they're asking, like an artist who's one of my favorites, Olaf Aureliasen, works with light. And he's been working for light not just for the last three years. James Turrell has been working for light for decades now. He's spent his whole life's money on building an art installation, essentially in a crater of a volcano that he bought. And these are not things that a museum is funding anymore. These are artists funding themselves because they believe so obsessively about what they want to do that they're they're doing just focusing on light to create illusion now you would think that this is a very simple thing but they go into psychology of it they go into philosophy of it they go into color theory they go into effects it has on people's psychology so it's not impulsive reactions even marcel duchamp it wasn't an impulsive reaction to put a urinal on a pedestal it was a very thought out a very research thing that this is a representation of our time a urinal today has become something of thus this important of an idea that it needs to be represented in a certain way, also to question current reality. So in art, running a contemporary art foundation, I think a lot of people were also like, why do you do what you do? And well, because it discusses and pushes culture to think about itself. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a mirror for current humanity to question itself. And there are very few fields which um, do that in a certain sense. Also, immediate gratification for me is one thing that I really wanted to say at this point because conceptual art, contemporary art, a lot of these things don't, memes also for that matter, don't immediately tell you what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. If you look at art before that, I mean, even if you look at Impressionism, Impressionism were just about started, but if you look at Renaissance, she disagrees with me, we've had this debate before. Um, but if you look at kind of perspective drawings, if you look at the Renaissance, a lot, it does have bases in science, but a lot of it will give you the context. Even classical music, they say, classical uh, dance, they say, it gives you the context. It tells you there's a real, uh, there's a deal. It's interpretive dance. It gives you everything. Conceptual art, contemporary art is taking away everything and letting you decide what you think of it. So actually, you have to do your research a lot more to be able to read into that art, which is where it gets tricky, like people don't understand it. But if you understand current politics, if you know your history, if you know your philosophies, you'll be able to make sense of it because you'll you'll immediately be able to draw a lot more references from it. <laughs> yeah, going back to art history, um, I feel like we... I feel like we give less credit because it is an immediate gratification now, uh, but it wasn't when it came out. Mm-hmm. For us to discuss uh, conceptual art right now, we needed to have Impressionism. 
if there were no impressionism, we wouldn't have conceptual, which is why it is so important to understand it in that context. Mm -hmm. Going back to your question, uh, there's this really interesting uh, sentence that uh, someone I worked with told me uh, was that everything apart from your emotions is borrowed. Ideas, opinions, everything, like intellect, everything is borrowed. You are not in isolation. No one is in isolation, right? So how do you define originality in that sense? And uh, second important thing that this person brought up was that uh, does art need to be original for it to be art? Is like, is our, is our uh, uh, think about it, like most of these really um, famous paintings throughout history, which people pay a lot of money to go to museums and admire, are they really original per se? No, they're inspired by scripture. They're inspired, like it's all, it's all inspired at the end of the day. So what is your baseline of originality? And like you have to ask yourself that. Um, and when you ask yourself that, you kind of think about do, why do I need this to appreciate something? Mm -hmm. uh, why do I need originality to sort of... Uh, when uh, Van Gogh made The Starry Nights, that was absolutely original. But at the end of the day, he sat in front of like a landscape somewhere and drew it, so is it really original? Is something that you need to ask yourself to understand if originality is important. So I think that's a great, great example. And I think this, you use the word imagination, which really excites me, because I think this is where the beauty lies. And this is where, not just artists, but I think innovative thinkers, creative people, have the power of imagination or the, or the capability of imagining. And because they are able to imagine, they're also able to imagine their own utopias, imagine futures, which is why they're able to create it. Mm -hmm. So unless you can imagine it, you won't create it, which is where it goes back to art. And uh, I, just I mean, uh, I just had uh, two points of input on this one. Even with emotions, like at least the way I've read about it, is that the experience of emotions that you have is original in the sense, I'm sorry? No, no, I was saying perceiving. <laughs> no, the, the experience of emotions you have is also borrowed. Yes. In the sense that like, it comes from an evolutionary perspective where you need it to survive. And another one is that it, it there's a certain amount of cognition that is involved in it to understand it. So technically nothing is nothing really, is yeah, so we, <laughs> Go ahead. So this is what I wanted to say. So it's not really about originality and idea, but this is where I think artists really play an important role. It's originality and process. Mm -hmm. So they'll take the same idea, but they'll present it back to you in such a new format that it changes your perspective about how you knew it. So uh, maybe like uh, Kusama, Yayoi Kusama, who's a really famous Japanese artist. Um, who essentially works with light and dots and she's obsessive about dots and she creates something called infinity rooms. Here she's really taken the symbol of a dot and created these small 8 by 8 installations but they look like infinity. And here she's taken a simple idea and presented back to you dots, right? And she's done dots in literally in a hundred bajillion ways that you could ever imagine that dots could be done. So she's taken a very simple process. There was a point where she took a completely white room uh, I saw it at the National Gallery in Singapore uh, as part of a children's biennale, right? 
completely white room. It has furniture that's white, the flooring is white, the cupboards are white, the couch is white, everything is white. And as you enter as an audience member, you're given a packet of colorful stickers. And you as an audience member are essentially doing her work for her in a certain sense where you're putting these colorful dots all across the the room and you see a completely white room growing into completely like crazy colorful because you have created the art. So she's really changed as who makes the art, yet it is kind of her ownership in a sense of it. But the process is what is original in a certain sense, not the dot. Yeah, so I find this very interesting and I also find it interesting that we've only mentioned visual arts up until now. Mm -hmm. I want to like really give a shout out to a very uh, important uh, concept art work from music which is called Symphony Symphony 4 minute 33 seconds which is literally someone coming in, uh, setting up and then not playing anything for four minutes and 33 seconds. So it's it's a blank symphony, which was, uh, is by some people thought to be the uh, birthing place of the white uh, canvas movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the white canvas movement is basically, uh, I think it's quite self-explanatory. It's, uh, you yeah. leave a canvas blank. So the idea of, hey, I work this hard, but I don't like any of it. So I'm gonna be quiet. <laughs> is very interesting and it's not something that is just visual which is what I feel like uh, guys I think everyone should check it out everyone should check out and like show it to your friends because it frustrates them and I find that really amusing (laughs) so even a brain in in the way that she she just sits right she stares into your soul what why <laughs> and that is that is the conceptual art that we're seeing today and i mm-hmm. think not just today it's been happening for the last what, four decades yeah. probably so there's there's two places I wanted to go with this, but like followed by a comment. There's something that I recommend our audience checks out. It's been mentioned in another video. Uh, it's something called Everything is a Remix. It's a series of just deconstructing how most of pop culture is actually influence of an influence of an influence. Um, so we'll, we'll start uh, on the easier one and then we'll go to the second one, which is a little more detailed. The first one is a place where I wanted to go. Like you said, there was this person who was letting the people make the dots and like draw something colorful and the process was original. Uh, now here, uh, I wanted to take an avenue into generative art and it, whether if it is inside conceptual art at all, and if it is, then to what extent is human autonomy important for art to exist? I I would like to tell our viewers that Aditi just like celebrated. (laughs) 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 Jojita Vosikandar was playing in the background. (laughs) It was brilliant. (laughs) I don't think you need human beings to make art. Um, yeah. <laughs> I I really don't. Uh, again, another shout out. If uh, you have Netflix, you should check out this uh, series called uh, Love, Death, Robots. Oh, and yeah. in the series, you should check out this episode called Zima Blue. It is one of my, uh, mm. one of like, it kind of will explain briefly in some way what I'm tra- going to try and tell you. Uh, is that I feel like the the 
the concept of what art is uh, has been heavily defined by who makes it which i honestly feel is bullshit uh, <laughs> i i genuinely I think i mean to some extent i get it but like um okay think about it in this sense how do i explain this in a way that i don't sound like someone who's just rambling um think about it in this way uh anuja i want to ask you if mm-hmm. you think of a meme and say for example an ai makes that meme for you would it be your meme or the ai's meme second question if the ai uh picks up on your thought works on it and makes new memes out of the first meme it made for you are the rest of the memes your memes or the ai's memes and the last question is does the memeness of the meme stay intact when the ai makes it or is is it no longer a meme so uh, the the way i think of memes is because like i have thought about this question for about i think 2 years um is that a meme is recognized it's it's made in the sense that it there's an ether where it comes from to in a cultural sense but it's recognized it's always been there so me and the ai are just tool of recognition is how i see it uh, but if you're saying that art is the same way then like that's that's a serious mind fuck i'd like to think about that for a while yeah i mean please think about it because i i find it really frustrating when uh, we separate popular visual culture from art meme is a fucking art yeah, sure. like why do we need to separate it it's all it's all the same right it's visual culture at the end of the day so i mean this is literally my claim to fame is <laughs> <laughs> because if memes are not art then like technically i'm a fraud i mean <laughs> I don't know if you know this about Anuj but Anuj was a curator while he was doing his internship at TIFF and he curated an entire meme exhibition a whole series that actually traveled to six cities uh, which is pretty phenomenal um eight cities no, no, no. no six eight venues, eight venues six cities um and it's really to think about how art is not separate from visual culture it's actually a response to it uh, a pushing of it creating also frictions between these different visual cultures that exist today um ai art generative art yes and it's not new it's been happening for a very long time memes uh, algorithm based uh, different visual culture things that have been happening for a very long time um i do in a certain sense still hold a lot of um space for artists that do use tactile experience use material because that is a whole different kind of thinking which actually on a digital realm will not be possible after a certain point because that's something that you can't build you can't build tactile experiences yet yet it's coming um and i've seen like some fantastic textile based art and different um tactile generative 3d art that's coming out yet at this t- this point i don't think there's enough of it um we are doing a festival called cyberia which is all along the lines of vr ar um ai algorithms we're doing something called an algo rave which is algorithmic music and live visuals that come from it so yes there is a huge um sense of originality but you have to go back into who created these algorithms who who is the source of that so even though it it could be generative today it's not always generative and biases innate biases of who is creating these and also responses from the larger society 
and because the society is biased those are reflected within the algorithms that we see so i do see a huge need for humans whether that's from initiatives that we see like computer girls which was a show at la gatlerique in france or whether you see girls who code and different code camps for women code camps for more inclusive communities code camp uh, code camps for low income communities i think these become really important forums where humans need to now actively place themselves within the generative realm to make sure that the issues socio political cultural issues that we have today are not repeated or even amplified in the future so i do do hold in reserve space for humanity and human intervention uh, within generative art going forward um plug in for gene cogan you must check out his work he makes memes but he also makes um ai based generative art um so if you if you look up his work you'll kind of see the also his papers his papers are fantastic yeah there's no hope in humanity um <laughs> <laughs> i like i look at it from the perspective of a point where the idea of generative art of or of generative creation in general is fully formed not now like centuries from now maybe then who is your bloody audience the is the audience necessary um i'm sorry i can see like both of their faces twitching a little bit <laughs> but like who is your audience and is the human being the audience is the art generated for the human being does the human being generate art like the these questions i feel like are very interesting because we look at it from the perspective of now but when we look at it from the perspective of something that is fully formed what is what is tactile to us may not be tactile to um, an entity a bot, a bot right uh, then how do you define tactile right and then it changes from i would like to say species mm-hmm. like from species to species um which is what makes this interesting the bottom line is does it not make it art i i think it still makes it art like i look at it from the perspective of if this is really cool question that again i keep thinking about um because i think about weird things sometimes is <laughs> um that when say for example you there's this really uh, cool philosophy called space is a practiced place mm-hmm. space does not become uh, sorry space does not become unless you practice a, a place like unless i'm practicing this place it does not become a space right so now think about it from the perspective of um, a video game for example uh will the video game um if you don't practice the video game in its status stagnancy is it still a video game hmm y- like <laughs> i mean i i i i don't know the answer to this question but i think about it a lot um but the, i feel like these are the questions that come to me when i think about generative art or when i think about digital intervention in art uh is because these definitions that we know right now are formed very um at least for a lay person like me are formed very loosely uh, a couple of generations from now this will be probably fully formed and then their definitions will be 
absolutely different from mm. from ours so i feel like we need to give it time to sort of yeah but my question to you is what is your utopia where do you want it to go not where it might go because if you like as i was saying it's all imagined futures yeah so where are you imagining or where where would you like it to go for it to still have some because for me i i believe as humanity we're kind of going in this weird realm where it's definitely like cyborgish but we're also going into a kind of back to the future format yeah. so you're seeing more and more people move away from urban environments more and more people going into things like farming things like textiles because there is a innate need for humanity to work with tactile materials to touch and feel because that's how we inform ourselves that's how knowledge is built yet at the same time we're not functioning as normal human beings anymore we have a lot of interventions whether it's in terms of um, chips whether it's in terms of devices we're using in the ways that we're viewing reality so reality is essentially skewed whether now or in the future hmm. but what is our utopic kind of balance because i feel like if we're not looking at humanity anymore those become really ethical questions outside of art completely yeah. is where where is this going to go and whose benefit is it whether it's in not just humanity but species or is the machine actually taking yeah. over which which could possibly happen i mean i see all inclinations of it but for us to think about what would what would be ideal yeah. for you so this is where um, my uh, skepticism messes with my personality uh, <laughs> because as as a person i i mean you know this i am extremely tactile as a human yeah. being i need to write things down i cannot like i can't i can't use we're my phone we're discussing craft <laughs> we're discussing craft yes and for me that is it's very important like it's very important for me to look at a person when i'm speaking to them it's very important uh for me and i i wish i really do hope that that is something that our uh great grandchildren will and can grow up with if we have any <laughs> if we don't have any then the the reality that i'm thinking of is going to be so so true which is that we're going to be the cyborg overlords are going to win mm-hmm. and yeah yeah that's where that's where we're going <laughs> Okay listen I see a, I see an opening and I cannot resist this joke but okay boomer We cry Well just just a joke just a, uh, the final question which we have the least amount of time for which is fine we can just run over the clock they'll have to deal with it um <laughs> uh, is that uh, a friend of mine and a fellow curator or a uh, uh, content creator uh, his instagram is ultra arcade go check him out um he runs an aesthetic page so what he does is he looks at different artists across the internet and he curates their aesthetic work into his instagram profile and um well the common question that he's getting from his friends and his audience is that what does it mean and if if i don't understand what it definitely means i am unfollowing so his complaint is that too often the the lack of clear meaning is what turns the audience away now we discussed that whether audience is important for the creation and existence of art i i lean towards no but at the same time they're the ones who sustain the art practice so is it possible at all that because conceptual art demands so much mental space in finding meaning 
that it turns away a lot of a lot of audience or is that is that just me being a snob no it's not you being a snob at all um it is very uh, specific or systematic that it is doing this abstraction they are just very aware that they are doing this abstraction and uh, with working with so many artists i've also realized that a lot of this also comes from the west a lot of the abstraction a lot of the art history that aditi and i both spoke about is very important to recognize that these are all formats these are all histories set within western context so when you kind of copy paste a lot of this and internet culture is still relatively new within uh, developing countries like india like uh, huge parts of china africa we, we know the drill um but it's really to think about how do these things apply to us how are these things relevant to us and how do we contextualize them for themselves now if i bring a work by jos boys who's a very famous um contemporary artist to india people will be like what the hell um people even there go what the hell but i think here it's just so far away from our reality and there they would at least if you see a couple of just boys work you'll be able to understand but it comes from a certain kind it's like the difference between hindi and english or any language in english someone who doesn't speak english uh, will always look up or aspire or uh, think of it in um, to as a way of access a visual art and conceptual art in a certain way is a lot about privilege and access where do you see these artworks you see the math museums how much do you pay to get into these museums where are these museums located indian museums on the other hand or um, other museums all over the world there is a lot of uh, fussy museum culture comes from a very post colonial or colonial construct and they can speak a lot more about this um so i think it's really important to identify which visual culture or not just culture it's coming from and the history of that within the context in shown in and we work with a lot of artists to kind of contextualize it for here so even if it's a german artist working in india or a dutch artist working here we we push them which is why the residencies become important because they can then immerse themselves in understanding how can the ideas i'm talking about in an xyz place apply to a certain narrative or a certain story or how do i make it accessible um a certain amount of artists don't want to make it accessible they don't care it's for a certain kind of people it will be for a certain kind of people yet at the same time we're seeing a lot of contemporary artists a lot of community based practice now picking up uh, i mean in the west for a little earlier on but in india in the last decade i would say where it's really thinking about accessibility how do we get artists to speak regional languages how do we get um, creatives who work in multiple different spheres spectrums how do we talk about inclusivity translations obviously these are very laborious um, processes all linked to funding also the lack of funding within these countries and spectrums too talk about what they're saying um but to tie up your answer i think uh, your question is essentially yes they're very aware that they are being cryptic in a certain sense and it's okay for them to be within their context i would say but if they are stepping out of their context i do think that they need to reanalyze where they stand and what they mean um in india we have a really famous artist collective called rax media collective who i would say are probably the only kind of conceptual artists in india the others i don't know what the line is for conceptual artists but they would be more contemporary artists than conceptual artists because they do still have a visual form a visual narrative a visual sense to what they do rax media i think but if you read rax media media collective's papers you'll know how sound their ideas are how backed by science by philosophy and literature the ideas are so it's really to talk about conceptual art in that basic form um do their works can you put their works out in public and have everyone understand them no
and I think I think they're well aware of, but we'll see. Um, I feel like uh, okay. Firstly, going back to the idea of where how the Indian audience deals with this, right? Is that the and I'm speaking of this from the perspective of actual research uh, is that the idea of the arts in India uh, have been very different from what we know now pre-colony. So the idea of the arts in India has been ritualistic, has been uh, to some extent also conceptual, uh, also utilitarian. So these, these oral. oral, the process of segregating all of this came here from the West. And the process of elevating it and giving it this uh, tangible value of money, of worth or whatever, came through colonization. And of course, because of the powers at play, we got the uh, short end of the stick, right? Uh, so that is one thing, which means that for centuries now, for that matter, generations of, of uh, Indians or I guess a lot of people from a lot of uh, colonized countries have gone through this weird process of generations them before them knowing something and them completely erasing it and knowing something new. So now we are at this place where we are aware of a lot of things because of the internet culture, because of what we know, but we don't know what to do with it. Uh, one is that. Second is this is this exercise which I feel like I do when I'm supposed to, uh, supposed to, I mean, when I enter uh, an art space or when I'm going to speak to an artist or whatever, set, leave every fucking thing behind. Like, don't go in with any expectation and try to, um, try to understand what the experience is. Don't try to understand the art, just try to like, try to live it, like try, to, I know that this sounds very, um, uh, it sounds very um, like I'm some sort of a spiritual person, which I'm not, uh, but like genuinely try to do it. Because when you, when you have these, you have these levels of expectation because you know a certain way in which art is supposed to be looked at or perceived or whatever. When you don't think about it and you just like enter a room, like, oh, okay, empty room, cool. Like, just do that once. And that makes stuff a lot more easier. You don't even need to like, you don't need, you don't need to get what the empty room is supposed to stand for. Another important thing to keep in mind when you uh, go into art spaces, if you want to go into art spaces, you do not need to understand it. You absolutely do not need to understand. I feel like people feel so much pressure um, and hence like refrain from going into art spaces because if they feel the need to walk into that space and understand it, no. Most of these places are meant, are made in a way that they intimidate you. And this is like, this is also coming from a space of research. Like a lot, there's something called a white cube. The white cube is designed to intimidate its viewer. <laughs> so be aware of that. Don't let it intimidate you. Walk in. Even if you don't know squat about it, just walk in. Look at it. It's okay. Don't, don't like, don't say stupid shit about it is all I'm going to say. Save that till you leave. 
because you may be rude to some people <laughs> but like just just like let it be don't try to there's no compulsion for you to try and understand it and i feel like once you do that the concept of conceptual art becomes easier <laughs> <laughs> i think very well said i i'd like to iterate that further and being like we we're working on being a not on non white cubes case we say we're not wine and cheese but chai and vada pav which is essentially like street um street food local food um so it's kind of not being appetite but i think the, the only reason i know we know people in the arts think they know uh, so much about art is because we expose ourselves and that's i think the key thing the more you see the more you know not just in art but i think anything life um the more you can contextualize it the more you can understand it or even for yourself and here i think it goes back to your question is um why is it not understood also i feel like there's a huge amount of laziness from uh, younger people today not to say younger people even from us even from an older generation but largely from uh, humanity who's now so used to immediate gratification so we want to know everything and i think this is with your friends page as well they want to know everything told to them in all of five words but if you have to say it in five words you have to abstract it so i think they don't understand the kind of chicken and egg where you're going back it cannot be immediate gratification anymore you have to go deeper you have to dig deeper you have to ask the right questions if you want the right answers and i don't think people are just willing to give things time anymore a concept of time has changed which is why a lot of these repercussions happen um so i think i i'll stop there <laughs> okay that's uh, about at the at the one hour mark and uh, i hope that as audience this was big brain time for you because it was big brain time for me uh thank you aditi and trishla for being on the podcast and uh okay kids that's all i have for you this week uh, i hope you enjoyed trishla and aditi's opinions on conceptual art and their parallels with meme culture and uh, their implications in philosophy and visual art um i'd like to do more episodes like this i'm going to try to get you more and more experts more and more guests try to bring you more content is uh, my goal but um i'm going to ask you to do a little bit of compromise for now uh, try to get a good equipment and like more, a more stable place for to record but those things aren't really cheap but thanks to my patreon supporters that's possible speaking of which if you want to support this show on patreon you can do that by going to the link down in the description uh, i'm on patreon as deep fried neurons and uh, well subscribe to me on youtube right here or well if you're listening to this on spotify or soundcloud or one of those uh, fancy audio places where you get podcasts like google podcasts and apple music or whatever uh subscribe and stay tuned so thank you for tuning in goodbye